As you turn into God's word um, this morning, I was, uh, I was thinking as I was preparing for this, I am, um, I'm far from what you would call a handy guy, and that's not me being modest. You can ask my wife. I'm way better at breaking stuff than I am fixing it. And uh, that's particularly true with cars. Now, thankfully, I know a few things about cars that I didn't know. Uh, but a couple of years ago, I was, I was on staff uh, as one of the youth directors with a, uh, a church, and I was driving a couple of boys home. And if you've ever had a flat tire, that just awesome, you know, life-sucking sound of the, the flat tire just rolling on the, on the pavement. It sounds like, an, you know, a limp airplane hitting the runway. And, um, I, you know, I heard that sound. The boys that I was, I was with were excited. They'd never heard this sound before. And they're like, what's that sound? I was like, it means the, the tires are going flat, guys. And uh, thankfully, the car just you know, lost its ability to move right in front of one of the kids' houses who I had to drop off anyway. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, wasn't a, uh, you know, a total disaster. But the, uh, the boys went inside. And you know, at the time, I, I know how to change a tire now. So you can, I have a little bit of credibility. But I didn't then. Uh, I, I couldn't even get the jack out of the trunk. And um, so I, you know, I did what a guy in, in my position would do. I just stared at the car angrily, hoping it would, it would fix itself. And after about 10 or 15 minutes, uh, the son, who I had just dropped off, comes uh, running back out through the yard. and said, hey, man, my dad wants you to come inside. I mean, that's the last thing I want. It's the last thing I need. So I can, why? So I can tell him I don't know how to change the tire on my car. And uh, he says, no, no, my dad wants you to come inside. So the son invites me in and uh, there are actually two dads in there. They're like, man, how long were you, how long were you going to stand out there? <laughs> I don't know. And I said, man, we're, we're happy to take care of you. We just, all you got to do is ask. And as we look at God's word this morning, we see at a much greater level, but we see a similar situation in that there are people in the disciples who are starting to feel hopeless and starting to feel lost. And what they need to know is that they need to ask and they are welcome to ask of the Father and the Son is inviting them to do that. Now, if you know this passage, you've read this passage, this passage is a passage we could spend three weeks on. I was actually listening to a seminary professor talk about this passage and he said, if we were gonna deal with everything this passage addresses in length and try to do it in one Sunday morning, then no one would get lunch. So we're not, we're not gonna do that. But he said, if, we're, if we only had one Sunday to look at it, then why would we want to look at it any differently as Jesus praying for his disciples and inviting them to do the same? Because at this point in history, the disciples are hours away from watching their teacher and their master and their, the, the one they thought to be invincible die on a cross. Jesus knows exactly what's coming and he's experiencing this anxiety and this fear as a man. And, and of all the teaching and all the promises that he's given at this point, he said, abide in me. He said, I'm gonna send the spirit. He said, the world's gonna hate you, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And then one of the last things that he does or says in front of his disciples prior to what he cries from the cross is to pray in front of them. And this morning, our need is no different. Now, I don't know how you came in, whether it's life is, is good, and that may include that you are following Jesus and things are just going the way you hoped they would, or it may be that you've come in with issues that you don't want anybody else to know about and are carrying weight that's crushing you. But our need is the same. That's to come to the Father. And that's the gospel that Jesus died to give us access to the Father. And so this morning, we see in the text that if our Savior prays for us, then we must pray through him. Let's look at God's word together. 
when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, for the, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I'm glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they were not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are given such an important uh, and wonderful invitation, but heavy invitation to approach your throne uh, in prayer, Lord. And we are uh, given a model of what that looks like as we, we listen to our Savior pray to you and for us, God. Um, Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself uh, through this, that your word would speak and speak clearly. Lord, that your spirit would come uh, as you've promised that it would and that your word wouldn't return void. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So because Jesus prays for us, we must pray through him. And as we look at John 17, one through 19 this morning, we see Jesus laying out for us what prayer should look like. So I'm gonna give you, I, I try to do everything in three points because I'm ADD and that helps me stay focused. But um, I'm gonna give you those three points so that you can follow along that way. If I run down a rabbit trail by accident, <laughs> you know where we'll wind up. Three points. We see Jesus praying, seeking God's glory seeing God as sovereign and as shepherd. And we see that when we pray, we are secured in the personal work of Jesus. We see Jesus praying, seeking God's glory. In verses one through five, Jesus begins his prayer asking that, the, that God would glorify him, that he may then in turn glorify God. Now, the term, glor or the term or phrase glorified God, if you've been around church, that's something you've heard a ton. So I don't want to, I don't want to assume you don't know what glory means. I also don't want to assume that you do know what glory means because we use that term so much that it's easy to forget or not to just not be aware of it and just say it. So really quickly, when Jesus is saying, I want the Father to be glorified and him glorify me and us exchange this glory, 
really quickly, glory, uh, it comes from a Greek word, to glorify means, or comes from a Greek word, doxadzo, which the only reason I tell you that is if you looked at that written in Greek, you'd be able to figure out where the English word comes from. It's D-O-X, right, or doxo, think doxology, right? Glory or to glorify means to, to ascribe to someone else value, importance, adoration, and praise, or to give weight and magnification to someone. So Jesus is saying, Lord, make me great in the eyes of the people watching. Give me praise and adoration so that I can turn around and do the same thing to you. And if you read the other gospels, the Lord's Prayer, right, the the prayer starts the same way. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It begins seeking God's glory. Now, why does that matter? Well, first of all, because he's worthy of it, right? If you call Christ your savior this morning, you that, that's our goal, right, is the glory of God because he's worthy of it. That's why we needed Jesus in the first place because he was worthy of glory. We decided that he wasn't and we broke a relationship and Jesus came back to restore us to that so we could glorify him again like we were supposed to. But in verse three, it says, you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life. He's worthy of that glory. And we would begin our prayers to him that way so that we know who we're talking to. We know how to approach the God of the universe. He's worthy of that glory. Now, if you write things down, the next thing I'm gonna tell you, this is what you would definitely wanna write down. We begin our prayer seeking the glory of God. Jesus prays seeking the glory of God because God's glory is synonymous with our good. God's glory is synonymous with our good. Now, notice I'm saying good, not comfort. Okay, there is a difference. And Jesus is clear in scripture. I mean, Jesus is asking for glory hours before he gets crucified on behalf of people that are gonna hate him. He's not talking about comfort. But he is interested in our good. He says in verse uh, four, I've glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So if you think about the work that Jesus did on earth, what was it? Well, if you're just staying in the gospel of John, he rescued a wedding from utter failure by turning water into wine, a bridegroom who was ill-funded and ill-prepared got to get married because Jesus saved the wedding. Blind people are seeing, people who thought they knew the truth are finding out that they didn't know the truth and are being given truth by Jesus. And then just a few chapters prior to 17, relatives and friends are outside the tomb of Lazarus weeping because they've lost someone they loved. And Jesus, the work that God gave him to do that glorifies God, Jesus walks into a tomb and tells a dead man to come out. So the works that glorify God are works that are about mending broken things. Now we see that and we experience that. We can experience it here. It's not always comfortable. In fact, in our world, quite often we see God's glory the brightest when it's placed on a, a black backdrop of something bad that's happened. And if you've been through suffering and you love Jesus, you would know that that's true. Whether it's going through a health issue, losing someone that you love, if you've cleaned closely to Jesus in times of struggle, you've seen that. God's glory outshines. It becomes clear when it's compared to something broken. But that's his glory comes from mending broken things. So his glory is synonymous with our good. And then praying, seeking God's glory, I don't think it's accidental considering where the disciples are in in history that Jesus in verse five says, and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. As I said, we will experience God's glory in this world. That is just a small taste of what's coming. 
And I don't think it's accidental that Jesus wants his disciples to hear him talking to the Father about something that's better than anything they've known so far. And as Christians, that's the hope, right? The gospel is that one day this world, as much as we may like it, is going to fade away and something better and unbroken is going to replace it. A type of good and love and peace we don't have a category for yet, but it is coming. And if we lose sight of that aspect of God's glory, then we are cheating ourselves of what Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross to win for us. My son, Titus, my four-year-old, we have family movie night on Friday nights or movie and pizza night, and he almost ruined that for all of us this past Friday, it's two days ago, because we're getting ready for the movie and we're sitting there talking, and he just like, with a smile on his face, starts talking about all of us dying, right? And my son's not a morbid kid, okay? But... We're like, well, and, and we were kind of shocked by that. One, that he said it, and then two, that he said it with a smile on his face, and then he realized that he had done something wrong, so he took off running. And um, I came and I sat him down in front of his mom. I was like, buddy, why did you say that? And he, as honestly as a four-year-old will do, said, well, you know, dad, a couple nights ago, we were talking about in heaven, Jesus is gonna roughhouse with me, and I get to play with baby tigers. I thought we, just, we should just all go to heaven together. Now, you don't need to question my theology. I'm trying to help a four-year-old understand. (laughs) I'm not claiming to have a proof text for playing with baby tigers. But the point is, man, he was given the hope of the gospel, man. He's looking forward to it. Jesus knows the disciples need that high view, that long view with where they are in history. And that's something we so desperately need, that we have something that stands and remains above the fray that one day will become a reality. And that's Christian, that's the cause to live out that reality. And if you're here this morning and Jesus is some, someone you have pushed off, you don't have glory like that that you look to. Now, you are ascribing glory to other things, but none of it can sustain, and none of it can compare to that. So as we pray seeking God's glory, second, Jesus prays seeing God as sovereign and seeing him as shepherd. Now, the word sovereign for some of us is an S word, right? It's a word we don't like. It's a word that makes us uncomfortable. But in the passage this morning, one, I want, want to make sure that, you know, I'm not making this up and we see sovereignty. So in verse six, Jesus says, whom, the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were and you, and you gave them to me, All right? So we, we were always gods. And then in verse 12, I've kept all of them. Not one of them has been lost except the one that was gonna be lost anyway, because that was part of God's promise. God is sovereign in all things, and that includes in us, in our lives and in our salvation. And when Jesus is saying, the ones whom were yours and you gave them to me, well, number one, you see an exchange, goes from God the Father to God the Son, we're still in God's hands. Then what we see is we were always his. Now, some of you may hear that and say, well, how do we know who belongs to God and who doesn't? If there's never been a point in history where we didn't belong, how do we know who is and who isn't? That's not up for you to figure out. In fact, God is very clear in his word that there are certain things we're just not gonna know. Why? Because we're not God, right? You go to the beach, you don't question the ocean because you can't throw a rock all the way to the other side. God is clear in his word. Man, I hold the universe in my hand. We can't even count all the stars. So rather than letting God's sovereignty and the fact that we can't figure out how some of this stuff works together enough to make us feel comfortable, rather than that being a point of contention for us, 
Jesus is inviting us to make, let that become a point of comfort. That there's not been a moment where he didn't have you in his hands. And because he has us in his hands, eventually we will start to live in that reality. You, in his sovereignty, right, he says, because right, you, he had us and then we believed in him. This is Ephesians 1. We've been his since, since the foundation of the world. And that's good news because you don't want a God that's not sovereign. And you may say, we also do. No, you don't. Because if he's not sovereign, not completely sovereign, then there's still a small chance that the things that he's promising won't come true. There's still a shot that something's gonna catch him off guard and everything falls apart. And that's not the case. But then as he's sovereign, he's also our shepherd. I mean, in one, he sent, sends us Jesus, right? Verse six, I've manifested... I've manifested your name to the people. He gave us Jesus in his sovereignty so that we could know him and know what we needed to know. I've given them the words that you gave me, giving us his words so that we may know the truth and know how to follow him. And even though we don't know all the answers, we have the answers that we do need to trust him even when things are difficult. And considering where the disciples are and what they're about to endure, they need to know God is in control and that he is in his control guiding them. And then when it, it says in verse 13, so that my, my joy, well, two things. So in 13, my joy may be fulfilled in them, right? And in his sovereign, sovereignty and his shepherding, he's interested in not our joy being fulfilled, but in Jesus's joy being fulfilled because Jesus's joy for us is greater than anything we could ever want for ourselves. But then in his sovereignty, and, and the reason I say shepherd is he, he uses the word several times, kept or keep, keep them. It's a Greek word that can either mean to observe or put to practice, but when it's, when it's said in, in regards to people, it's got a military terminology. It means to guard them, protect them. And specifically in this case, that's done through the church. He says, Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He's talking about the disciples, those who believe in Jesus, which if you believe in Jesus this morning, you are a disciple, that they may be one. So in his sovereignty and in his shepherding, he's also given us one another. And some of you, you love that. And I, I love Exodus because I think we're a church that is, does a good job of unity. But at the same time, there are some of us here this morning that you would say, hey, I love Jesus, but the whole community aspect, the whole being one with one another, whether it's because we just don't see eye to eye on certain things or frankly, because to have someone that close to me just freaks me out. We think that we can have Jesus and push off the church. And Jesus is not praying that for us, asking a sovereign God who shepherds us to keep us as one, just as they are one. That means calling us in to be intimately involved with one another, knowing one another's burdens, caring for one another, being there for one another, and strengthening our weakness. Not arguing about things that don't matter that much. Kept and one in his name. United that our greatest problems have been met by the same solution, And then as we see him, we seek his glory and we see him as a sovereign shepherd. We also, as we pray to him and as Jesus shows us in his prayer this morning, we, are, we see ourselves secured in the person and work of Jesus. I, uh, I mentioned the car breaking down earlier. So as these two dads, going back to that story, um, standing in their living room and you know, like I said, you know, the son invited me in and they said, just ask what you need. And one of the dads said, and why don't you meet me downtown tomorrow and I'll, I'll get you a good deal on, on some new tires. So I meet him downtown the next morning 
and I'm just listening to this guy sell me like the newest, greatest pair of tires uh, that, that they had. And as the, the, you know, the dollar amount started to ring up, I started to wonder, am I really getting a good deal? And I, I keep looking at the dad. And he's just smiling at me, grinning. like, yeah, it's like, oh, doesn't. And then they give me the final toes. Like, this really doesn't feel like a good deal. And so I get a call later that afternoon from the, uh, the, the repair shop. And they did, you know, what car places do, right? They start pitching on all this other stuff that's supposedly wrong with your car. And I just stopped. I said, look, man, I, I don't even know that I can, I can pay for the tires and take my car off your lot. So let's just stop talking about all the other stuff I need to buy. And he said, well, I'll stop trying to sell you other stuff. He said, but you can come get the car whenever you want to because it's already been paid for. When we approach Jesus, we approach God. If you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you're secured. Everything that you need has already been paid for. And specifically in the text this morning, he says, I, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. First off, we're secured from the world and we're secured from the evil one. Now, you can imagine the disciples' response here when he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. If I'm the disciples, I'm like, I didn't even know that was an option. Why, why not ask for it? I don't want to hang around for this. Because he's got plans for us. We're part of his mission so that others would be redeemed, but we're kept from the world. The world's gonna hate us. The world's gonna throw fire at us. We don't belong to the world anymore. And then more specifically, we have an enemy with a name, the evil one, in this case, Satan, who's not this goofy character with hooves and a pitchfork. He's characterized as a roaring lion in other parts of the New Testament. We're told in Ephesians 6, it's spiritual warfare. Some of you know this to be true. Others take it for granted or don't think about it. But one-on-one, we're outmatched, us versus him. He knows exactly how to manipulate, exactly how to lie, exactly how to woo you to sleep and think you don't need Jesus anymore and to tear your life up in any way that he can, but he doesn't match up to Jesus and Jesus can ask God, keep them, protect them, that same military term, stand in between them and him. You're secured from the world and the evil one you're secured on your mission as, I'm sent, as you sent me, Father, into the world, so I have sent them into the world. That's why he's not bailing the disciples out yet because they're going into the world to proclaim the gospel. As Christians, we're called to do the same thing and we're guaranteed not to fail because Christ has already come. Christ has already finished the work. We're simply participating in what he's already done. And then finally, we're secured from not being enough. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified. The word consecrate and the word sanctified are the same word. It means to make holy or to set apart. And Jesus in in the Greek is using the perfect tense. He says, I am setting myself apart so that they may be set apart in truth. The perfect tense is, it's intentional because that means that it happened definitively in the past and then the effects carry into the, the present and the future. Jesus set himself apart death and resurrection so that we may also be seen and set apart as holy in God's eyes. And the minute you say yes to Jesus, you are made holy. Now, our our growth, our sanctification is progressive because we continue to live it out. But in God's sight, we are already set apart as holy. So we don't approach him afraid he may turn us away. In fact, Hebrews tells us to approach boldly because we approach through Jesus, not on our own merits. So what do we do with this? Well, it would be easy to say, well, Jesus prays, so you should pray and drop the mic and go home. 
But this is not a light prayer. It's not a simple, fluffy, easy to deal with prayer. There's a lot in it. So three things. First of all, in seeking his glory, uh, a while back I was listening to a pastor preach and his church supported an orphanage in Europe. I can't remember exactly where, but he went to visit the orphanage um, and, and to meet with the guy that ran that, that particular ministry to encourage him and see how they could, they could, t- could, could continue to help. And he asks the, the guy that runs the orphanage, orphanage he says, man, how, how are things going? Uh, how can we pray for you? And he's like, well, he's like, man, things are overall going really, really well. He said, the, the biggest problem we're having right now is keeping the windows clean. And he kind of laughed and the pastor said, what do you mean the windows clean? And uh, he said, well, we told the, the younger kids, we started you know, taking them through the, the gospel story and we told them that they, they can see God's glory and one day that Jesus will come again. And so the younger kids just like relentlessly were like pressing their faces against the glass before bedtime and when they got up in the morning because they wanted to see it. Maybe this will be the day. And so if you are here this morning and you say, yes, Jesus is my savior, then I want you to pray and live expectantly. I want you to pray and live with dirty windows. Asking God, knowing that his glory is going to be accomplished and looking forward to the day when he returns where we see his glory in an unbroken form. I want you to live and I want you to pray expectantly. Because the moment we start praying without that in sight, man, we're not not praying gospel prayers anymore, right? This is what Jesus died to win for. So I want that to always be in the forefront. Second of all, as we pray to God, who who is sovereign and our shepherd, pray for the people of God. Pray that they would be kept in God's word. Pray that they would be kept in his name. But then the other application there is that requires us to know the people of God. That requires us to allow others in and to spread ourselves out so that we can can be in others' lives. Because you can't pray for the people of God if we don't know the people of God. And God in his sovereignty has given us the church, so we pray for the church, but be a part of the church. And that's not, it's so easy to say, well, that's an optional piece, but that's not, if Jesus is praying for that hours before he's crucified on our behalf, that's not optional for us. And then third, and this point comes from a seminary professor who taught on this passage that I listened to a lecture on. When we pray, be encouraged be encouraged and confident that your prayers are going to be heard because you come to God not on your own merit, not, on, not you know, with the potential of not being heard because you're not good enough, but secured in the person and work of Jesus that when you come to God, if you're a Christian this morning, when you approach God with whatever brokenness you think he does not want to know about, man, he hears you. Not only does he hear you, he values you. And that prayer will be used. In fact, there's a book called If God is Sovereign, Why Pray? And in in the book, the paraphrase, he says, God in his sovereignty, when we come in Jesus' name, God in his sovereignty has set up blessings in heaven waiting to be unlocked by the prayers of God's people. And we come in Jesus' name, those prayers are going to be heard. Those prayers are going to be used. And if you're here this morning and you don't think that God wants you or you think you've got something that would, that's just too much for him to handle, there's some reason holding you back from giving your life to Jesus, 
he died. And in this passage, he's hours away from dying and a veil's gonna get torn so that you have access to the Father and you come in his name asking for his righteousness and you are welcomed in. We'll close with this. In regards to prayer, um, as you know, Billy Graham passed away earlier uh, this week. And this is a quote from him talking about prayer. It says, pray because Christ died to give us access to the Father. Pray because God is worthy of our praise. Pray because we need his forgiveness and his cleansing, his guidance and protection. Pray because others need our prayers.